Thank you, Pastor Dave. Good morning, Church of the Cross. We're so glad to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, as our organization has gotten to know Church of the Cross just a little bit over the past few months, and we've been so encouraged by your evident desire uh, to extend God's love to your neighbors in the community, uh, and especially those who are affected by uh, foster care. And so it's a joy to have the possibility of partnering with you and seeking to understand how to do that in a, in a sustainable way. Uh, so on behalf of Mike Brown, our director of programs, who if you will stay for the info session after the service, you will hear more from. I want to thank your leadership for inviting us to, to be with you today uh, and talk about something that's really important to our hearts, but even more significantly, we know it's something that God cares deeply about. How does our faith in Jesus and our participation in the community of those who follow Jesus compel us to be the kind of people who care about and for children in need of temporary or permanent families? Um, on All Saints Day, on this first Sunday of National Adoption Month, it's an appropriate day to consider uh, this together. I want to begin by sharing a story with you that's personal to me. Um, on October 5th, 2011, uh, just 11 years ago last month, my family was gathered in a courtroom in Providence, Rhode Island for the adoption of our second son, Asa, who happens to be with us this morning, put him on the spot, embarrassing. Uh, with his permission, I share this story. Uh, we had arrived at the point in the proceedings when the judge was going to officially declare Asa to be a member of the Reed family. It was kind of the point of the proceeding. And the judge said, this child shall hereby and forthwith be known as, and right when he reached that climactic point, when he was going to state Asa's new legal name, he did something that we weren't expecting. He hadn't prepared us for, and didn't happen in any of the other adoption ceremonies we've been part of. He paused, he looked me square in the eye, and though he didn't say anything, I could sense that he was silently beckoning me to complete his declaration by stating Ace's new name. At least I hope that's what he was doing, because that's what I did. And so he stated, this child shall hereby be known as, and I declared, Asa Michael Reed. And then the judge said these five words, I'll never forget. And so it shall be. And he banged his gavel, and so it was. What a transforming moment, for better or worse, for one boy and one family. Everything changed when that judge made that declaration over him and us. Later that evening, as I thought about what happened in the courtroom, I couldn't help but think about another kind of adoption, far greater in scope and significance than even what had happened that morning, God's adoption of me, of us, into his family as his sons and daughters. And I begin this way this morning because really the starting point for understanding how it is that our faith compels us to be the kind of community that would care for children in need of temporary or permanent families is understanding that the story of someone in need of spiritual home, the story of adoption for those who follow Jesus is not someone else's story. That's our story. When we were in need of spiritual home, 
the great triune God that we've already been worshiping together this morning at great cost created space within his family, within his fellowship for us. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God the Father sent the Son, whom we know as Jesus, to redeem those who were under the law so that we who had been redeemed might receive adoption as children. Through adoption, we are placed into God's family as his sons and daughters. And it changes everything for us. It gives us a new status as children of God. Gives us new privileges that are beyond the scope to even begin to explore this morning. That's a sermon series in itself. But along with that, that new status and those incredible privileges comes new responsibility. To live our lives out of the overflow of the, the blessings of the gospel that we have received. And with that in mind, if we have a Bible, you can look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. In these two verses, I think we have the most succinct description of this twofold uh, thing I've just described. Our status as children of God, coupled with the responsibility that flows out of it. So Ephesians 5, 1 says to the church, Therefore, coming out of chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, where Paul just revels in the gospel and what we're part of as part of the church, and the call to live in light of that. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So he says, we are to, as the community of Christ followers, reflect God in how we live life in this world. But notice, we don't imitate God as a means of earning his favor. We imitate God out of the overflow of the favor we enjoy as dearly loved children of God. When Paul uses that idea of children, I think he has in mind adoption because he's already he started the book by celebrating in chapter 1 this beautiful theme of God's work to adopt us. And so we're children of God by adoption, but notice we're not just children of God in a dry legal sense, as though, you know, God just stamps our adoption papers and files them in the great filing cabinet in the sky, as it were, and, and says, okay, who's next? We are dearly loved children of God. Our Father loves us with a deep, passionate, eternal love that's beyond comprehension. And it's out of the overflow of this love that the Father has for us at every moment of our lives that we, His children, desire to reflect God in the way in which we live our lives in this world. Not out of so much a sense of duty or obligation, but out of delight. We want people to see and know this God who loves us so deeply. And that begs the question, well, what does that love look like? Or, or I should say, how do we most imitate God? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Well, the, the verse kind of points us that direction, right? We who are dearly loved children of God, how would we most imitate Him? If there's any question, verse 2 clears it up. He says, imitate God as dearly loved children 
and live in love or walk in love. The idea there, the language is we, we most imitate God as we live our lives in love, as we walk in love. When a person comes to faith in Jesus, it's as though the Spirit of God implants within us the, the DNA of God's family. And over time, that DNA blossoms and flowers into the family trait, the defining characteristic of the community of faith. And that family trait is love. We most imitate God as we are walking in love. But not just any kind of love, not, just, not, not a love that we are left to define for ourselves. Because verse 2 tells us what this love looks like, the kind of love God has in mind. He says, walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. The kind of love he's referring to is a, a sacrificial love, a love that lays its life down for the good of the other. Now let's just pause for a moment and revel in this truth. Verse 1 says that you are dearly loved by your father. Verse 2 says your elder brother deeply loves you as well. Our elder brother laid his life down for us. He entered into our brokenness in order to serve us at our greatest point of need so that we could be brought into the family as his younger adopted brothers and sisters, and share his inheritance. What an elder brother. If you're here this morning, if you get nothing else out of my talk this morning, I hope that your heart is nourished knowing how deeply you're loved by your father, by your elder brother. And it's this experience of God's extravagant love that, that through which the Spirit creates a community of people for, for, for which love is the defining characteristic. And the, the, the word here is so picturesque, we walk in love. So think of that the idea, we live in love, the idea is to walk. So step by step, as you walk through life, wherever your steps take you, there, love. Love like Jesus loved you. Be willing to enter into and move toward the brokenness around you in order to serve and love even at cost to yourself. And that's the logic of the New Testament ethic. This becomes the, the ethic that shapes the, the, the norm for the Christian community. Since Jesus moved into our brokenness and loved us, we become a community who moves out into the lives of others to love and serve them there. Now, that being the case, let me tie this to adoption and foster care and caring for kids who need families. Since we are called as a community of followers of Jesus to imitate our Father and walk in love, it makes sense since we first have experienced that very adopting grace ourselves and have been welcomed into the family of God. And since as we read from Psalm 68 a moment ago, 
God reveals himself to be a father to the fatherless, the champion of the widow, the one who would place the lonely in families, the desolate in homes. This is who God is, a God whose heart is turned to the desolate and the vulnerable and the marginalized around us, including this biblical category of children who need families. Since that is who God reveals himself to be, and since we have experienced him to be this way ourselves, it makes sense that one of the most um, particular ways in which we would imitate God's love is by being a community who, where the need exists, would welcome children into our homes and lives as they need temporary or permanent families. So there's, I think, a powerful connection between this verse and James 1.27. Perhaps the most familiar New Testament verse about caring for children who need families. James 1.27, of course, says, Pure and undefiled religion before God our Father is to visit or care for the widow and orphan in their affliction and to keep oneself inspired from the world. So that verse isn't a command to us. There's no command in James 1.27. It's a description about what the kind, the most pure, one of the most pure and acceptable expressions of worship looks like before God from his people. And what does he say of all the things he could have chosen? It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list. And what does he say? He says it's to move into the affliction of those around us who are in places of vulnerability in order to look after and care for them in their place of need. As the, the community of faith is willing to move into those hard places, even at cost, not because we are better than, but because we ourselves are ones who have experienced that very grace from God and desire to extend that grace that we receive to others. God says it's a pure and acceptable expression of worship before him. And so that's why we believe as an organization that as long as there are children in our community who need families, the Christian community not only can but must be leading the way to ensuring that that need is met. See, the call to love is never abstract. God calls us to love in the concrete. We read in, in one of the lessons today, love God and love neighbor. Children in need of families are one of our most vulnerable neighbors who need people willing to extend to them the kind of sacrificial love that God has extended to us. Right now, in Massachusetts, there are about 9,000 children living in the foster care system, and there's an urgent shortage of families to care for them. There's recently a, a very public article in the Globe about the shortage of families and what that's resulting in, in terms of the child welfare agencies trying to find solutions, even so far as making provision for kids to possibly stay in the offices overnight instead of a home. After a, at a point where a child is in the most vulnerable place where they've been removed from their family and perhaps left to, to stay in the office. 
Right now in Massachusetts, there's 1,160 youth living in child welfare who will need to be adopted but don't yet have an identified adoptive family prepared to adopt No extended family, no foster family, no community resource. They're in the system waiting and hoping that someone will emerge willing to receive them in the family at risk of aging out of the system at the age of 18 or 21, having never been adopted or been able to return to their family. And so as an organization, we believe that that's unjust, that we would remove a child from their family because perhaps their family is at least temporarily unable to care for them, but then not have a safe alternative for them. And so that's why we exist. That's what drives us as an org. Our mission is to empower churches like Church of the Cross to integrate service to the foster care community into the ministry DNA ethos of the church. And our vision we call Project Zero. Zero as in the dream of a day when zero children in our communities would be waiting for a safe, supported family to care for them. Ideally, as often as possible, that family turns out to be the child's family of origin through either family preservation on the front end or safe, timely reunification as often as is possible. But in the meantime, as I've said, there is an urgent need for more safe, supported, temporary foster families to uh, envelop these kids in love and care for them until they can return home, or if they can't, families willing and able to say, Welcome to our family. Welcome home. And so uh, it's our joy to come alongside the Christian community who we know is called to this kind of love and service to empower and support them towards that end. And so in that mission statement I mentioned a moment ago, I said we, we desire to help it become a sustainable part of the culture of the Christian community. And those two words are really important for us, right? Sustainability is important because since it's a, an expression of authentic faith, and you could argue a mark of, of excuse me, authentic worship, and you could argue a, a mark of authentic faith from James 1, we believe as long as the need exists, the Christian community needs to be part of the solution. It can't be a fad for us. These are human beings who bear the imago Dei, the image of God, and therefore are worthy of our love and care as long as they're present in our community. But we also believe it should be part of the culture of the church. Again, since it's a mark of authentic worship, repentance, Isaiah 1, and faith, it's not simply reserved for those few among us. You know, those foster families and adoptive families. Aren't they the heroes among us? But that's their thing. Now, actually, since it's a mark of true worship, it should be part of the culture of who we are as a Christian community, something we're marked by and known for. Now, a culture doesn't mean that everyone is called to do the same thing or everything, right? It means two things to us. Number one, at the very least, it means we have a collective way of thinking about this. We agree collectively, yes, if there are children in our community who this moment are waiting for a family, we should care about that and we should be part of the solution. We can agree on that collectively. And then that compels us to engage. 
right? And so, again, it doesn't mean that everyone would be a foster or adoptive family, but it means everyone can do something meaningful to make a difference in the lives of children, families, and professionals who are affected by foster care. So a big part of our work as we work with churches is helping them establish what we call multiple entry points so that you can step into the story of foster care in a way and at a place that aligns with your current gifting and capacity, who you are as a person, your current place in life. For some, you could perhaps take the step of welcoming a child into your family as a foster or adoptive placement. Some are just simply not in a place to do that, but you could say, I could support a foster family within my community. If someone raises their hand and says, yes, we're going to be foster or adoptive parents, you could come alongside and encourage them, help them, provide childcare for them. We have a formal program for that. You'll learn more about that if you come to the info session after the service. Some of you might say, I don't even have that level of commitment right now. Well, that's okay, too. There's other opportunities for you to step in that are, that are easy entry points, that are lower commitment, like committing to pray for the foster care community, giving support of those who are doing foster care, involve yourself in service projects to meet tangible needs to the foster care community. So there's so many things that the Christian community in Massachusetts is doing right now to make a difference, to build bridges of love, trust, and good news to this community. There's a place for you. And together, as we find our place, as we step into the story, we can be a community that steps into one of the, the, the most challenging intersections of social need in our society, bringing the beauty and glory of God's adopting love to that community through our acts of love and kindness. We, I, I read recently, and I'll close with this. Jason Johnson, who's a leader in the National Movement for Christians' Engagement in this space, told of a man he met just last week, he's a 67-year-old man, who said that he was in foster care 50-plus years ago from the ages of 11 to 14. He described life in his home as, quote, hell at the hands of an abusive man, speaking of his father. So he was placed in this foster family at the age of 11, and the foster dad was a well-known man in the community, very small community. He was out of town on a business trip when this boy was placed in the home. So he, the boy was told that the dad would be back at the end of the week and he'd meet him then, and of course the boy's filled with fear because he's had bad experiences with father figures. That night, however, he was woken by the man who had driven three hours in the middle of the night woke him up and said to him, quote, hey, I couldn't wait until Friday to meet you. I had to see you tonight and just tell you we love you. You're always welcome here. I'll be back Friday. I can't wait to hang out with you. He then drove three hours back to his hotel. A six-hour middle-of-the-night round trip to say a few words to a kid who would one day be a 67-year-old man through tears, telling Jason that this was the first time another man had ever told him he loved him. It changed his life forever, and he says, to this day, 50 years later, he thinks about that night every time he lays down to go to sleep. What a difference. What an impact 
as we move toward and enter into the lives of others in places of vulnerability who need family, as we say, yes, welcome. God has loved us, therefore we love you. It matters. Church of the Cross, wouldn't it be beautiful if the Spirit so worked within this community that day by day and days and years ahead, that the beauty of that grace and love just shone here in Boston with you and other communities like you. May God do that for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We pray that that love would bear fruit and that we would imitate you in how we live our lives. We know we are unable to be and do this apart from your grace. We are the rescuers. We're the rescued. And by that grace, we pray that we would be a means of love to others. And we pray that many children and families right now who are in our community and affected by foster care would be um, impacted deeply through your people as we walk in love as Christ loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.